Good morning. Today we will be doing things a little different today. My goal is to do something I've never done before, and that is to preach the entire Bible in one sermon. You're like, oh, man. Yes, I want to cover the whole thing today. Now, what I mean by that is, is I want to give you a shuttle's look at the Bible. I want to give an overview of the Bible, what we are here for, why we are here today, and explain the glory of the gospel to all of us and go over it. We live in a beautiful world, don't we? It is truly breathtaking. You see pictures like this of the mountains. Isn't this amazing? These pictures, I was like in awe as I was looking at them. Our God created all of this. Beautiful mountains. And then there's the oceans. From sea to shiny sea. I mean, it's beautiful. Pictures of oceans, clear water, beautiful skies, powerful waves, waterfalls all over the world. Aren't they amazing? Where we live is truly spectacular, isn't it? Birds, like the hummingbird, the pigeon. Look at these. Man, I saw this picture. I was like, wow. Look at these two hawks hitting each other, attacking each other. Amazing animals. Yeah, that's the only one I took. I took it right out here. Fish. The sea is filled with amazing fish. Wouldn't I like to catch one of those? Look at that. The fish are just, um, they're, they're shocking. The, the demonstration or the, the artistry of God is truly shocking. The animals that he's made. Who could have just dreamed this up? I mean, nobody could come up with these kind of things. A tiger, I mean. Okay, I think I'm going to make something that's like a really big cat, and then I'm going to throw some stripes on it. Well, no, this one I think I'm going to just throw some leopard spots on it. Or the lions. Majestic animals. Then there's even insects. You can go. You can look around. And you see them everywhere you look. There's... The, the creation is startling, isn't it? Grasshoppers. Who comes up with this? I mean, think of the greatest picture you've ever painted. And it doesn't come any close, even close to what God has created. And he made it to be alive. How many of you can make something live? Nobody. But God created all of this. He made it all matchless, beautiful, stunning. His creation makes us all, doesn't it? Butterfly. Oh, I took that picture too. 
butterflies. They're amazing. And, and sunsets. And sunrises. And snowfalls. Wow. And rainstorms. This is shocking, isn't it? Uh, that was not intentional. Ah, <laughs> uh, that'll be a that'll be a Facebook post or a Twitter thing. Pastor Mike says shocking when he sees that. Yet in all this beauty, there's also sadness and pain in this world, isn't there? Suffering and death. Everywhere we look and everyone we know, some of our best friends, some of our grandparents, most of us in the room have had somebody who has what? Died. Yeah. There's death. There's sickness. There's hospitals. They're filled with people that are sick. We see it everywhere. Even kids, even children that are sick. The evidence of suffering is everywhere we look, right? There's pain, there's death, there's tears, there's fear, there's sadness. Yet at the same time, we know that it's a beautiful creation that God made. But there's good news. There's good news. There's need for hope in this world, though, isn't there? Something to take away the pain of death and sadness and hurt. We need good news to answer the sadness and pain of the world. We need the promise of deliverance from the evil and the pain of this world. The creation groans under its curse, doesn't it? Every one of us in here have groaned at times, haven't we? Under the curse. Today we're going to examine God's message of hope for a lost and dying world. It's found in the Bible. We will answer six questions from the Word of God in order to find out and to learn where our hope is found. First, we'll see who is God. Then we'll see who are we, that is humans. What was the promise of God? Who is Jesus? What should be the response to Jesus? And what are the results of faith in Jesus. So let's look at these and answer these questions. But before we do, I need to, we need to establish something. Let me ask you a question. Where do we go to get these answers? Where do we go to get these answers? Who is God? Who are we? Where do we go? The question is, what is the authoritative answer? Should we go to other humans to find out who God is? Should we go to different countries to find out who God is? Should we go to different man-made philosophies to find out who God is? The answer to that is no. We should go to God to find out who the answer is. We should go to the one that created all of these things to find out who God is, right? Does everybody understand that? I want to know who God is. I want to know who I am. I want to know who Jesus is. I want to know where hope is found. Here's the good news. He's given us all the answers to these questions 
in this book, the Bible. It is the authority. He tells us exactly who he is. He's revealed to us just who we are. He's told us where hope is found. And it's all found in this book. This is the authoritative word from God. And this is where we get our answers. You say, well, what's so big about this book? Let me tell you a little bit about this book. Because the book itself tells us about the book. But let me tell you about this book. Did you know that God supernaturally worked through 40 different authors, 40 different authors, to write 66 different books over 2,000 years? This book was written over 2,000 years in span. And all 44 authors never one time contradict themselves. They always say the same truth. They all speak about the same God. It is perfect. It is holy. It is righteous. And it is where we find out the true answers about who God is. That's good news, isn't it? Somebody comes to you and asks you, Who is God? You know what you need to do? Get your Bible and say, This is who God is. It's found in this book. Read this book. It will tell you. None of the authors contradict. None of them. They all say the same message of who God is, who we are, where is our hope. All of them say the same thing. They all point to the same God over 2,000 years. Do you know that this book has been attacked? It's been attacked for 2,000 years. People have tried to say, it is not a true book. They've said that. And you know what it's done? It's withstanded all the attacks it's still the truth and we can know who God is from it there's absolutely no contradictions in it everything in it is perfect everything in it is righteous the book is inerrant it's without error it's the word from God Jesus speaking about the Word of God says this in John chapter 17. He says, about the Father's Word, he says, set them apart in, your, in the truth. And he says, your Word is truth. This is truth. This is truth. Is it Pastor Mike? Is it my opinion? No, it's what this says. This is the truth. God's Word. So this is where we get our answers. Outside of us, not from within us. Let me ask you a question. By raise of hands, how many of you were born believing in God? Mm, be careful. Born believing in God. Believing that God was the creator God and that you would serve him with all your heart, mind, and soul. Anybody born believing that? No. None of us. We were born what? Rejecting God. And so if somebody came up to you and asked you when you were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 16, before you were a believer... They asked you, who is God? What would you have said? 
Well, what maybe your parents taught you. Or maybe what somebody else had told you. Maybe something you saw on the internet. You probably didn't have internet growing up, some of you. No Wi-Fi for us, right? What do we use? We used our hearts and human opinions often to dictate who God was. But everybody who's come to a saving knowledge of God knows what? It's the God revealed in this book. So where do we go for truth? I want truth, don't you? Right here. This is where we're going to get the answers. So let's answer the questions from here. First question. Who is God? Who is God? Real simple. Look at the very first line in your Bible. It's very simple. It's read there. You can read it. We can see it, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who do we go to to find out who God is? God, through his word. And he says who he is. And he says that he's the what? Creator of all things. God is the creator of all things. God is the creator of everything we see. From the very first word of the Bible, God is assumed to exist. And notice in this, in verse 1, that God, God is there before the creation existed. God has always been. He's never had a beginning. He made everything you see. He's the creator of the mountains, the plains, the oceans, the animals, the birds, the fish, the insects, the environment, the stars, the universe, the moon, the entire creation is his. He made it all. He spoke it all into existence. He made it by his powerful voice. He spoke and it existed. That's amazing. Notice God here in verse 26 of chapter 1. Verse 26 of chapter 1, God is revealed as a plural, yet a singular. Wait, he can't be plural and singular at the same time, can he? Yes, he can. He is plural in that he is a trinity. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that's revealed in other parts of the Bible. But he's a plural, and it says it in the very first chapter that he's plural when it says, Then God said, Let us, what's that? Plural, us, make man in our image. God is a plurality, our image according to our likeness. God is a plural, yet he is a singular. We know from Deuteronomy chapter 6, that he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How can one say our image? Because God is different than man. God is three persons and yet one God. From the very beginning he revealed himself to be this God. A plural singular. Three persons. One God. The intricacies and the immensity and the beauty of the creation reveals the glory of its creator. 
It is foolish to think that all of this came into being by random chance without a master artist. It would be crazy for us to walk up to a great piece of artwork and say, that happened by chance. The same is true about the creation. You cannot look at the creation and say, this was a random chance thing. Because the word of God says God made it. He created it all. He spoke it into existence. In fact, the Bible says in 19, Psalm 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. The creation right now is screaming, God is big, God is great, God is amazing. Yes, I'm scaring you, Kevin. Hang in there. I'm excited, can you tell? God is big. He created it all. He's amazing. He's awe-inspiring. And yet, in all of this, what do we do with this great truth? When we're born, what do we do? We immediately begin to say, nope, there is no God. Nope, there is no God. Nope, I want this God. Nope, I want a God that loves me the way I am with no conditions. That's what we want. So we make up gods in our mind. Everywhere, all over the world, we make up gods in our minds. We make them up here in America real good, don't we? Sometimes we even call our God here in America what? We call him Jesus, but he's not the Jesus of the Bible. It's the Jesus I tack onto my life and I live however I want. I don't honor him and glorify him. I just do whatever I want and say, I'll go to church every once in a while. That's no different than the man-made gods all over the world. Why? Why do we look at this glory and not thank Him and praise Him? Why? It's amazing. God is also not only the Creator, He is also sovereign. He's the sovereign over His creation. What's that mean? That means that He's in total control and authority of His planet and His universe. He controls everything. He made it and now sustains it. He is intimately involved in everything that happens on the planet, even life and death. Did you know in Psalm 139, in, in Psalm 139, I don't know why it's not there. Oh, there it is. Psalm 139, God's word says this about God. Your eyes, God, have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were writ all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. We can now stop and think about that. You know what that means? That means God is in total sovereign control of the exact time that you will live on this earth. That means that, Jeremy, God knows the day you were going to be born and the day you're going to die already. Before there was one day, he knows it all and has ordained it all. And it's not just Jeremy, but it's Kevin, and it's Brenda, and it's Luke, and it's everybody in this room. God knows every single day that you will live your whole entire life before you live one day. He's in total sovereign control over every event that happens in this world. 
Wow, that's a big God, isn't he? That's what the Bible says about God. Psalm 115 states this. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Now what's that mean? That means this. That at this point in time, many, many nations would say, oh yeah, where's your God? Your God's not around. Why are you failing? Why is your country not doing so well? Why is there so many bad things in your country, Israel? Where is your God? They've mocked them. But the psalmist says what? Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Which means that he's in sovereign control of all these events. Even our demise. Even our bad things. God is in control of every single government on the earth. Do you hear me? Even if they don't acknowledge him as their God, he is God. He is sovereign. How do I know this? Now again, listen to me, beloved. If you listen, you look at this. Y'all look at it, and I look at it. We look at the TV. We watch the TV. We watch things happen, and we go, it looks like, Things are out of control. It looks like things are bad. What do we, how do we determine whether or not God's in control? By what we see or what he has said? He has said that he's in control. Even if you don't see it and understand it, he's still in control. How do I know? Because he told us. He is the sovereign God. Is this important? Is this a part of the message of the Bible? Yes, this is a part of the message of the Bible. That all of this, did you know that the last verses of the Bible tell you what's going to happen in the end? How can he, how can he know what's going to happen in the end and write about it 2,000 years before it happens? Because he's in ultimate control. He's sovereign over everything. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 46. Look at this. This amazing verse. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done. Saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. How many of you can tell me what's going to happen tomorrow? You say, oh, well, I know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to be teaching English from about 8 till about 12 o'clock. Oh, really? That could change. We don't know, do we? But God doesn't only know what's going to happen today. He knows what's going to happen in the end. And he knows everything. And he's in sovereign control of it all. What if you don't believe in that God? It doesn't change the fact that he's still sovereign. Even if you don't believe in him, he's still sovereign. Even if you reject him, he's still sovereign. I love this. The Apostle Paul gives it to us beautifully, doesn't he? Look in your Bibles over at Acts 17. Acts 17. The Apostle Paul talking to a bunch of people that had never believed before. And he tells them. Exactly who God is. 
Now, the people thought they knew who gods or their gods were. They had all these little statues. But the Apostle Paul comes in and says, let me tell you who God is. And he tells based on the authority of who? God in Scripture. Okay, look what he says. He says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor does he serve by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He made from one man. Who's that? Adam. Adam. He made from one man all the nations of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Wow, aren't these amazing verses? You know what that means? That means that God establishes all the nations and the exact time at which they would survive and thrive or go away or be defeated. He knows all of them and he's ordained it all. And in him we live and move because he's what? Outside, he's the sovereign over everything. He made us. He gives everything and every person on earth, life, and breath. And I'm going to do it again. I've done this before, and I think it's important for us to get. You ready? I want everybody with me. I want you to take a deep breath. Go. Oh, doesn't that, isn't that good? That was good, wasn't it? And you just exhale, exhale. You know why you were able to take a breath? God gave it to you. Do you know that he owns every air molecule in this world? And that if he decided for your lungs not to work, they would stop working. Do you know that you will only breathe as long as he determines you to breathe? God is in control. He's sovereign. Yet, he's also a loving sustainer, isn't he? He's loving, isn't he? How kind is he? God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, as Jesus said, and, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What's his point? His point is real simple. God provides even for those that don't love him and care for him. He cares for them. Why did the sun come up today? <laughs> because God ordained for the sun to come up today. What's the sun doing right now in this part of the world? It's shining and it's making the plants grow. You know that's important. You know why that's important? Because we don't eat if the plants don't grow. God is making all of this work perfectly. What an amazing God. He provides. He's a loving sustainer. Also, God is a righteous God. He's a righteous judge, rather. He's a righteous judge. What's this mean? All of his creation, and he's worthy of worship from all of us, right? Yet he's not respected, and he's not honored, and he's not glorified, but one day he will judge everyone, the living and the dead. Psalm 98.9 states this. Psalm 98.9 states this. 
before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. What's this mean, that God will judge with equity, with righteousness? He's fair. He's just. He's righteous in his judgment. And no matter how much we have, no matter how much information we have, he will judge us based on the information that we have. God is a fair and just God. Now, does that mean that somebody that hasn't heard about Jesus Christ, will they be judged too? Yes, they will. Why? Because the Bible says that the creation itself screams that God exists. And they have lots of evidence of God. Everybody has that. It also says that we have a, a heart, a, a conscience that tells us what is right and wrong. That God has put there. And so we will be judged. If we've never heard about Jesus, we'll still be judged based on whether we do what our conscience says. And all of us in the room have not obeyed our conscience, have we? So God is a righteous judge. And he will judge. Also, Psalm 119, 119.137 states this. Righteous are you, O Lord. Upright are your judgments. Psalm or Revelation 16.7 at the end. When the judgment is happening on the earth. Telling of what's going to happen. It states, and I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty. True and righteous are your judgments. God is just. Did you know that a king that was not a believer for most of his life, a king of a foreign land in modern-day Iraq today said these words about God. He figured out who he was and said this about God. This is what he said. He said, I bless the Most High and praise and honor him who lives forever. For his dominion, his reign, his everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth, how many of the inhabitants of the earth? All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. What does he mean? In light of who God is, they're nothing. God is the one. But he does, God does, according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? What's that mean? Ultimately, that means no one can say to God, why are you doing things the way you're doing them? Because he is God. What a king. This king. He got it after eating some grass. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Nebuchadnezzar, he got it. He said, there is no God, there is no God, or I am God, is what he often thought. And then God humbled him, and he said, there is a God, there is a God. He is the only God, and I'm not going to say anything else to him or against him. God is sovereign. So what should this cause in all of us? It should cause fear. A reverential fear. Is this a fear that like, oh no, oh no. It's a fear that I'm going to face a just God. And I need help. I need a rescuer. I need somebody to help me. Why? Because 
I haven't honored that God my whole life. Have any of you in the room honored and thanked God your entire life, every moment of the day? None of us. But he deserves that worship, doesn't he? He made us. He sustains us. He keeps us alive. We're here because of him. We should be thanking him all the time, shouldn't we? But we don't. So we got a problem because of who we are. Yes, we're God's image bearers. Yes, we're God's image bearers. God made us, as Genesis 1.27 states, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man, male and female, he created them. Let me tell you something. The creation, the, cre- the creatures, us, humans, are the pinnacle of God's creation. I mean, I wish I could have each one of you, one at a time, just come up and look out. Look out. It's awe-inspiring. I'm telling you. You are some beautiful people. (laughs) And the diversity is amazing. It's wow. You are amazing. You're beautiful. You're image bearers. You can tell God created you. You are amazing. Fearfully, as, as David says in Psalm 139, I will give thanks to the Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Y'all are some wonderful work. Beautiful work. Amazing design. You can talk. You can sing. You can smile. What a God, right? That he would make us this way so we could have relationship with one another. And relationship with him is what image bearers mean. We'd have relationships. However, it doesn't stop there, does it? We know in Genesis chapter 3 what happened. The first man and the first woman fell. And when they fell, we became fallen creatures. Humanity is fallen now. And instead of glorifying God and honoring Him, we are now born sinners. Born dead in our sin. Born rejecting God. Born not wanting to hear the truth. And as Genesis 8 states, 21, The Lord said to Himself, again plurality there, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is Evil from his youth. What a description. Let me ask you a question, really honest. When you were 8, 9, 10 years old, how many of you, if I would have walked up to you and said, are you evil, what would you have said? What would you have said? No. No, there you go. Thank you, Hunter. No, I'm not evil. I'm not evil. Again, What determines whether we are evil or not? What we think of ourselves or what God's word says about us? God's word reveals that the intent of man's heart from youth is evil. That's who we are. Jeremiah 17, 9 states, The heart of man is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Implying what? You can't even know how evil you really are. 
But God knows, doesn't He? Then Romans 3, 10 to 12. See how all the authors say the same thing? Everybody's affirming the same thing. Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Who is that? All of us. There's none who does good. Again, if I asked you, when you were 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, do you do good? You would say what? Yeah, I obey my mom and dad. I do what they say to do. What's the problem? It's all about external. It's not about what's really going on inside of you. It's not to honor God and glorify Him when you serve and obey your parents. You obey your parents and you serve your parents. Why? Why do we do it? So they'll do what? Good job, son. Or give us a blessing. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? You remember? They'll give us a little bit of video game time if we're good. But the Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that we do things for ourselves, not for God, not for His glory. So we're all what? Sinners. And we deserve judgment. You say, well, this is, this is horrible. You have all these nice young children here, and you're telling them about what? That they're sinners, and they're condemned. Well, let's get the message clear. It's for everybody in the room, not just them. Every one of us is born what? Condemned. Deserving judgment. How do I know? Ephesians 3, or Ephesians 2, 1 states, it should be Ephesians 2, 1. Children of wrath. That's what we are. We're children of wrath. In Romans 5, it states, why is it this way? So then, as through one transgression, that is Adam's sin, there resulted condemnation to all men. Verse 19, for as though the one man's disobedience, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You are all, and we are all, and I was born a sinner. That's us. No matter how cute you are, we're sinners. We don't like God, we don't want God, we hate God. That's us. You might not feel like you're a sinner. You might think you're a pretty good person, but the Word of God tells us different. God's Word says that we think evil thoughts about other people because our hearts are bad. God's Word says that we see somebody, they have a toy or something, they have a car for an adult, they have a house, and you say, I want that. I want that. I'm not satisfied with what I have. I want what he has. I've been reading through the, the kings. And I, have you noticed that if people in power, oh, they can be very corruptible people. They're very corrupt people. Why? People in power have the ability to take whatever they don't want or whatever they want. They have power, so they can just say, nope, I like that. Give it to me. You don't have a choice. Right? 
Are people in power worse than me and you? No. The only difference between people in power and us, listen closely, the only difference is they have the power and we don't. If we had the power, guess what we would do? Exactly the same thing. Let me ask you a question. Think about this for a second. If you could go out and take from anybody in the community anything you wanted, and there would be absolutely no consequence, and no punishment, no discipline, nothing, you could take it, and everybody would still honor you and respect you, would you take it? <laughs> That's what our hearts are like. That's how evil we are. We giggle, but that is exactly what flesh is about. This is the heart we're born with. So what do we do? Where do we go? Where's our hope? This is what Adam and Eve were like, and this is what their children were like. This is what happened when Cain killed Abel, and all the people were wicked, and God brings a flood. Why was it like this? Why are the kings like this? Answer, we're sinners, but we have hope. Here's the hope. God gave a promise. He gave a promise in Genesis 3. He says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. Talking about Satan and the woman. And between your seed, the evil one, and her seed, her offspring, her child. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Who's she talking about? Who's this talking about? It's talking about the promise of a, a rescuer. It's talking about a promise of a savior. Someone one who would come in and would be the one that would put an end to Satan's rule and reign. And would rescue us. So what happens in Genesis 5? Noah's father? Noah's father's thinking, oh, maybe, maybe my son, Noah, is the rescuer. And he says these words, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has caused, which the Lord has cursed. What's the point? He thinks maybe Noah's the one. Maybe Noah's the one. Was Noah the one? No. But there was one who was promised that would come and rescue us. 700 years before Jesus came, this was written about him. The promised one, the Savior to come. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. This is what we're going to celebrate when we do the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about him, aren't we? This was the promised one who took the punishment we deserve. He would be smitten by God. This means he would be judged by God for sin. This was the coming Savior. This is the one he promised. He promised in Psalm 2 that he would, I will surely tell my decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask for me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. 
That one day all the nations will be His. And all the planet will be His again. He is the promised King. He is the promised Savior. Thousand years before Jesus shows up, He is promising this one. So who is Jesus? We talked about it in our reading. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but you get it. In the beginning was the Word. This title, The Word, is talking about who? Jesus. In the, wor- in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. How do we know the Word is talking about Jesus here? Because in 1.14 it states what? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, the glory as the only begotten from the Father. One of a kind from God the Father, full of grace and truth. Now I want you to listen, folks. Listen closely. I know, bear with me. Everybody needs to pay attention. Hang in there. It's very important that you get this. God became a man and lived among us. God was the perfect one. He came to earth and became the perfect man. He lived a perfect, righteous life. It says, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, as 1 Peter 2, 2 states. Jesus knew no sin, as 2 Corinthians 5, 21 states. This means he never sinned, not one time. We sinned, he didn't. But why? To fulfill the law. To do that all that what God commanded. To obey it perfectly. To keep all of the law of God perfectly. Doing what we couldn't do, right? And Jesus was tempted just like us. And he was without sin, as Hebrews 4.15 states. He was righteous and he, was, he fulfilled all that was required of him. This was God's plan. He would send his son into the world to die for sin. The righteous one for the unrighteous one. The sinless one for the sinful ones like us. And Jesus died to be an atonement for sin. To pay for sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, He, God, made him who knew, or him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's this mean? Real simple. Jesus was perfect. He came in. He died so that people who believe in him could be right with God, righteous in God's eyes. So the sinless one could make the sinners sinless. What a great truth. What a great truth. 1 John 2, 2 states, And He, Jesus Himself, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for also the whole world. What's that mean? That means God appeased the wrath through His Son's death. His own wrath that we deserve for not honoring Him and thanking Him, He appeased it by what? His own Son's death. And it's for the whole world without distinction. It's for Chinese people. It's for Haitian people. It's for Irish people. It's for all kinds of people. He appeased for all 
types of evil. What a great truth, isn't it? Did Jesus come to die for America? Answer. Yes. Yes. Did Jesus come to die for China? Yes. Did Jesus come and die for Italy? Yes. He died for the whole world in this, to provide a way for your sin to be paid for. If you will repent and believe in him, your sins are forgiven. If you will believe in him, you will be right with God too. That's great news, isn't it? So how do we know, how do we know that Jesus' death was sufficient to pay for all types of people all over the world? How do we know this? Because guess what? He did not stay dead. He did not stay dead. He rose from the dead. That doesn't happen, beloved. You know that, right? Dead people that are in the ground for three days do not get up and walk out. How do we know that what God did is true and that when Jesus said it is finished, it is really finished? How do we know that our sins can be paid for by what Christ did on the cross for us? We know because he walked out of the grave. He's alive. He ascended to heaven and one day he will return. How do I know that all of this is true? Because the Bible says it. Did you know that over 500 people saw Jesus who had died on a cross, rise from the dead, saw him with their own eyes and testified that Jesus is alive? Jesus is alive from the dead. Sin can be paid for. This is good news, isn't it? So the question is, what should be our response? We'll close with this. What should be our response? Our response should be fourfold. Look, first, we must recognize our need, our own need. How many of you need a Savior? Good. Love to see the hands. We all need a Savior, don't we? We're all born dead in sin. You must recognize your need of a Savior. You recognize that it was your sin that he died for. If you recognize that you, you, it was your sin, if you recognize your need, you will say with those in Acts 16, the jailer, when he heard the message, Sir, what, what, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to be saved? Where am I at? Right there. Sir, what must we do to be saved? Do you think that? We must repent and believe. This means we must turn from our sin and believe in Christ. We must trust in Him. We must believe in Him. As Acts 13, uh, 16, 31 states, they said... Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Commit to Him and you will have your sins paid for. Even that one. Turn from your sins and your self-rule. Perfect timing, right? <laughs> Sorry, Sage, your son got to be the illustration today. <laughs> he can handle it. 
What is this? Beloved, we need to understand we need a heart change. I want you to understand that, hey guys, shh, Kevin, very important. Listen, we all need to recognize that we are sinners and we need a Savior. Everyone in the room. Listen, it is more about you checking your own heart than what's happening with other people in the room. I can't stress this enough to you. You say, why in the world is Pastor Mike preaching a gospel message to us who are saved? Answer, because we need it just as much as the unsaved. Do you understand that the gospel is our necessity too? Whether our guests get even a word of this does not, is not the most important thing. Are you getting it? Are you trusting in him? Is he your Lord? Is your, are your sins forgiven? Oh, friends, we must repent and believe in him, and then we will obey him because we know he loves us. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. Obedience is what we do because our hearts have been changed. We know he loves us, and we now want to serve him. Whether the world goes with us or not, we will serve our king. And one day, what's going to happen? Our king's going to return, and he's going to establish his kingdom, and it is going to be a glorious thing because every tribe, tongue, and nation and people will come and worship him as he is worthy. How do I know this is going to happen? Because that's Revelation chapter 21. It's going to happen. God will be glorified by all people. It is going to be good. It is going to be good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time and your word. Lord, we understand that the gospel is good news indeed. We know that it was our sin that held him on the cross. It was our sin that he died for. Father, we pray that you will help us now to honor you, to worship you, to praise you. And as we take the Lord's Supper, we pray that you will help us to understand and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.